You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. What is the behind-the-scenes story of President Ronald Reagan's emergency surgery? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Daria Ruffalo, a trauma, surgical critical care nurse practitioner for over 30 years at Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Daria Ruffalo, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much. What led to your passion for presidential medical history? I've always had a passion for history, and certainly when I'm reading, I like to make sure it has something to do with what I do for a living as well. And so whenever I could read something that has something historical of significance as well as healthcare or some kind of healthcare crisis, I just find that um, usually a good read for me. What is the behind-the-scenes story? Of Ronald Reagan? Yes. Well, Ronald Reagan certainly is a more contemporary president as far as things that the press had a good understanding that was going on. But there were some things that we certainly didn't know that were really kind of significant in his care that didn't come out to the general public. I would have to say that over my review of probably about six or eight presidents that I've looked at, he had certainly the most state-of-the-art contemporary care. And there was only one real near miss with him, and it was as he was shot, he was pushed into the car by his then director of Secret Service, which was Chief Jerry Parr. He was thrown into the car, and at that time, Ronald Reagan thought that he knew that there had been some gunshots. He didn't know he'd been hit, and he thought the pain that he was experiencing in his chest was from Jerry Parr landing on him. So Jerry Parr threw him in and screamed to the driver, head to the White House immediately. And Ronald Reagan then started yelling to Jerry, saying, get off me. You've, you've punctured my lung. I can't breathe. I think there's something going on here. You know, I, I can't catch my breath. I want you to move. So he keeps pushing Jerry at Jerry Parr. And finally, subsequently, he starts to cough up blood. And at that point, he said, not only you've broken my ribs and punctured my lung, but I'm hemorrhaging. And it was then that the decision was made to go ahead and bypass the White House and head to George Washington Memorial Hospital. We know without a doubt, had Ronald Reagan been delivered to the doors of the White House, he would not have survived. What happened at the hospital? Well, he attempted to walk in under his own power. And he was uh, saying jabs, things like, I hope you're all Republicans. And he tried to be photographed walking in. There was press all around. He did collapse to his knees just as he got into the front doors. And at that time, he was kind of whisked up, brought into the emergency department. And I can tell you, there is incredible documentation, and it's open to the public to be able to be able to ascertain what was his patterns of treatment. But it fits exactly with our contemporary tenants of ATLS, which is Advanced Trauma Life Support, which is put on by the American College of Surgeons. And he, minute to minute, got exactly the type of care that we would kind of describe in a textbook. What people don't know is that he had almost 4,000 cc's of blood as a blood loss, which is a massive amount of volume loss. And why I say that, had he not been in this very contemporary trauma hospital with tremendously trained trauma surgeons that were waiting in the wings, he was in profound shock. He had blood pressures in the 70s. And we do know when you deal with a geriatric patient, and particularly a geriatric patient suffering from trauma, which is what Ronald Reagan was. He was 70 years old at the time of his shooting. It's a very difficult hurdle to clear when you have elderly people in shock. But what we know is he got quick and effective intervention, and his resuscitation was pristine, and he was hospitalized for only a week and a half. How was his post-op care? There was a little bit of conflict in that contemporary management of uh, penetrating chest trauma is that there is surgery if needed. Certainly, you have to divert the blood that's in the patient's chest. 
but we do not use what we call prophylactic or empiric antibiotics on these patients. And everybody kind of put their heads together and they said, well, he is the President of the United States. Don't you think we should give him an antibiotic? And everybody kind of put their heads together and we think, well, I don't think if he, you know, we should do this or maybe that. But they finally said, you know what, let's just go ahead and do it. So they started him on antibiotics and they did it for three days, which is not a full run, of course. And they said, you know what, we probably don't need it. So they stopped it. Then he had a fever and a little bit of a white count. So they not only started the antibiotics, they started giving him gamma globulin, immune globulin, started him on a second antibiotic, all of which was unneeded. Finally, after day seven, and he started to look really good, there were no more fevers, there was no white count, they said, let's just stop, stop this whole treatment. So they started to kind of throw the kitchen sink at him a little bit. What happened with President Dwight Eisenhower? Eisenhower was a little different in that he really was not a victim of trauma. He was a victim of chronic illness, and he actually had dealt with many, many issues regarding abdominal pain for his entire life. He had his first term in the White House and was soon going to come up for re-election. He woke up in the middle of the night uh, in, the middle, in mid-June with abdominal pain and suffered and suffered all through the night with fevers and apathy and diaphoresis and vomiting, huge volumes of bilious vomit. So finally, after 13 hours of doing this in the White House, they transferred him to the hospital. It was then when he got to Walter Reed General Hospital that his three doctors kind of put their heads together. He had a cardiologist. He had a general surgeon and a gen med doctor, and they said, what do you think we should do? They had a documented x-ray that showed that he needed to have an operation. He had a small bowel obstruction, and they waited for 26 hours after the onset of pain, 13 hours after the onset, uh, after his arrival at Walter Reed Hospital before they finally brought him the, to, to surgery. And of note is that he probably needed to have a staged operative procedure because of all the edema to his bowel because of the thickened mesentery, because of the sharp demarcation point. But there became two areas of debate. One was that we know that Dwight Eisenhower suffered from terrible heart disease, and they thought if we do this operation on him today and we have to do another one, maybe his heart wouldn't sustain it. And also in the back of people's minds, and there's documentation of this, they knew that if he had to have multiple operative interventions, that would absolutely impact on his ability to be reelected. So what they did was, they did an, ast- an anastomosis without resecting this huge area of bowel that should have probably been taken out. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Daria Ruffalo, a trauma surgical critical care nurse practitioner at Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, discussing emergency surgery of the president's, a historical perspective. Daria, why did they wait so long? Well, there was a little bit of a debate as far as should he be operated on or not. If he would have been a Joe Blow coming in with the x-rays, and it is, again, remarkable that you can pull up Eisenhower's x-rays and actually see his small bowel obstruction. You can see his barium enemas. Those are all public domain. If he had been a regular citizen that walked in with that, they would have operated on him right away. There was concern over his heart status as well as his bid for re-election. They actually, the three doctors said they were going to take a vote. And while they were making this decision, Mamie Eisenhower, who was in the hospital there, turned on her heels in frustration and walked away. And it was finally then Eisenhower's son who came forward and said, I'm signing the the consent. Go ahead, take him to surgery. And what was the course of treatment? They did do this end-to-end anastomosis with no resection. and He actually did quite well. He was in the hospital for 12 days. He had no cardiac events. He did go back to the White House. He was able to go ahead and scan for re-election. However, he did suffer a long, prolonged depression after that hospitalization. Of note, however, he did, after he was in the White House, have 
recurrent, recurrent small bowel obstruction to the point of about 10 of them, so most of which requiring hospitalization. What did he end up dying from? He did have to have another surgery in 1969, and they thought, uh-oh, this area that we did not resect probably is giving him problems. So he had another obstruction. They brought him to the operating room, and they actually found that that area that they had left inside, that defunctionalized ileum, was unchanged, was in no way causing him the problem, and he actually had a small bowel obstruction a little distally to that. But two months after they did this operation, he had another heart attack, a very significant one at this time, and he was actually a candidate for the intraortic balloon pump, which had been developed but wasn't fully on the market at that time, and the developers refused to allow the president to have it because they felt this would be a very high-profile case, and if he went on to die on the balloon pump, it probably would not take off. So he died with chronic burned-out Crohn's disease. He died of his heart disease. But that anastomosis that they had risked so many years before had remained intact. What does history teach us? History teaches us that we have to make sure that it doesn't matter who we're taking care of, that we give them the optimal care that we have available to ourselves, and that there is always something to be learned, and there's always room for us to sit together as a team and really put our heads together to try to optimize the outcome for our patients. Based on your years of education, training, and experience, when you have the opportunity to be with the residents, what are the gold nuggets you offer them? The biggest thing I say about trauma, and I have, you know, like I said, 30 years in trauma, is that this is a team sport. There's always something new on the horizon. We have to constantly be reading. We have to constantly stay current. Because in trauma-critical care, nothing moves forward faster than this particular area of, of, of medicine. And I always tell them again is that everybody brings something to the table. And as a team sport, all of our team members bring their expertise to the game. And it's this kind of multidisciplinary approach to the management of these really complex patients that will provide an optimal outcome for our patients. Do you see things improving in this regard? Absolutely. I think I have a responsibility as a house staff and the resident staff as far as a teaching appointment and orientation I do for them, and I serve as a liaison for them. And without a doubt, these young and up-and-coming residents have a really good idea about there is a multidisciplinary approach to patient care, and they cannot be all things to all patients. And that's that's a real refreshing thing, um, aspect to work with. Are you working on other presidential research projects? Uh, you know, I have um, some interests that have kind of come up. Um, recently, I was I go to Galena quite often, and I'd always uh, had an interest in Grant. Uh, and I knew that he had head and neck cancer, but I didn't know to the extent and the debilitating surgeries he had had, and that he had had a tracheostomy and all these terrible things. And he wrote memoirs during that time. So I'm reading that, and I'm doing a little research on Steve Irwin and penetrating cardiac injury and how that whole incident with the stingray led to his demise. And there's been some publications that are out on the public domain as far as the cause of his death and looking at penetrating injury. And certainly shortly thereafter, Steve Irwin's death, there was a man who had the same incident but did not pull the barb out of his heart and went on to live. So I'm kind of looking at that. And I'm a big Princess Diana fan, and this is the 10-year mark of her death. And there's been Ken Maddox, who is a very well-known trauma surgeon in Texas, has done a couple publications on would she have survived or not, and I've been reviewing that. Tell us more about Steve Irwin. Well, what we do know from a Steve Irwin standpoint and what has been kind of listed out um, in some of the uh, professional literature is that most likely what he died of was a cardiac tamponade. And one of the basic understandings of any type of trauma management, if somebody is impaled with an implement, you leave it in place because it can stem blood, it can provide hemostasis, 
It can provide a tamponade effect. And though that he, of course, you know, was, was in excruciating pain and whatnot, that he went ahead and pulled the barb out. But what we do know is that probably led to his death and that he had a cardiac tamponade where the pericardial sac filled with blood. Coming up on the anniversary of Princess Diana's death, what is surfacing? She did have a pulmonary vein injury, and we knew that. That was that was published uh, shortly after her death, and she had some other soft tissue injuries and a femur fracture. But what we did not know is that she actually had what we call um, a, a myocardial herniation. Her heart had actually moved out of the mediastinum where the heart usually sits and had herniated into her chest cavity so that it would kind of like fall forward. And as they were moving her, they, um, there were some thought processes that heart fell forward. It caused more and more bleeding. So it was the mobilization of moving her around that caused this heart to kind of lift out of where it should be and lead to profound hemorrhage. I'd like to thank our guest, Daria Ruffalo, Trauma Surgical Critical Care Nurse Practitioner. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.